his army descended like a storm from an alien land. His warriors possessed astounding skills the world had never seen. His ambition knew no bounds. From the burning deserts to the frozen north, his army would unleash their fury across Asia and into Europe. In his name, they would conquer the largest empire in history. His name was Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan would become a legend in his own lifetime. For his Mongol warriors, he would be a hero. To his adversaries, he would be the rider of the apocalypse. century. Knights are at the height of their power. In a medieval world, they are the ultimate weapon of war. Centuries of conflict have honed their skills. Skills they practice in tournaments across the continent. They are iconic symbols of European virtue and valor. Many have come to think them invincible. But in fact, they are unprepared for the enemy they are soon to meet. Priests do not place their faith in knights. They rail against an ungodly world and fear a force no army can stop. Their sermons draw from the book of Revelations. They prophesize a coming apocalypse, an apocalypse that will break across a sinful Europe like demons unleashed. On the 9th of April, 1241, their fears would come true. German and Polish knights, led by Henry II of Silesia, would face the army of the Mongols for the first time. inspired by their legendary leader, a man long dead, but whose fame lives on, a man named Genghis Khan. stunned by the alien riders. had overrun much of the known world. But who was this man whose memory still inspired armies 
to march to the very gates of Europe. We have little information on the life of Genghis Khan. One important source is the secret history of the Mongols, which seems to have been started by his adopted son, Shihi Huduk, shortly after Genghis Khan's death. In the year of the rat, they came all together, the nobles of the right wing, the princes of the left wing, and the leaders of the thousands. Shihi Huduk records stories of ancient warriors, heroic deeds, and the life of Genghis Khan. He is a careful chronicler, yet the secret history is not a history book. It is an historical epic. Interestingly, an epic not just in praise of Genghis Khan, but one that also reveals the darker side of his extraordinary life. Sometime in the middle of the 12th century, a powerful Mongolian general returns to his camp after a successful raid. He is spurred by good news. His wife has given birth to a son. cannot know that this small boy will one day rule the largest empire on earth and bear the title Genghis Khan. As he was born, he emerged clutching a blood clot the size of a knucklebone dice in his right hand. To this boy, they gave the name Tamujin. The shaman interpret the blood clot as a divine sign. A sign Temujin will be a great warrior. Temujin comes from a noble family. His father is a respected warrior who has fought many battles and increased his clan's wealth and land. Like all Mongol children, Temujin learns to ride and hunt at an early age, skills essential for survival in the vastness of Central Asia. Here, the law of the steppe rules supreme. The strong will take what they want and the weak will plot their revenge. Temujin makes friends among his clan. His best friend is a boy named Jamuk. They are like brothers. But the bond they share will one day come to haunt the future Khan. The two become blood brothers, exchanging arrows as a sign of closeness. Neither knowing that they are destined to become bitter enemies. Temujin enjoys a virtually carefree childhood. When he is just nine years old, his father takes him to find a bride. In the camp of an allied tribe, they see a graceful girl, Borta. 
Temujin's father proposes the union, and in accordance with Mongol custom, the young Temujin must live for a time with the family of his betrothed. Borta's father accepts the proposal and welcomes the young Temujin among his family. Two children are kindred spirits, something they both come to realize on the long rides across the steps. In these carefree days, neither can know the adversity they will face. But a messenger will soon bring news that will change their lives forever. Temujin's father has been killed, poisoned in an act of revenge by an enemy Tartar clan. The boy must return to his people. But Temujin will return to an uncertain fate. Without his father, his family has no protection. They have been abandoned by their tribe, left to fend for themselves. All the people had gone away, leaving only the mother and her sons. She was born of great courage. With a stick in her hand, she fed them by digging up roots. Temujin's family, once wealthy, now has nothing. In their desperation, Temujin and his three brothers begin to quarrel. Over time, the conflict escalates. Eventually, it turns violent. Temujin comes to see the conflict as a war with only one certain end. As the oldest, he will settle the score with his rival brother, Bekta. Bekta sat in a clearing, watching the family's horses grazing. Temujin and his other brother crept up from behind, drawing their arrows to shoot. Bekta said, How can you treat me like some dirt in your eye, like something that's keeping the food from your mouth? How can you do this when there's no one to fight but our own shadows? Temujin and his family are constantly hunted by his father's old enemies, enemies eager to capture or kill their dead rival's eldest son. They hide in the forest, but even here, they cannot escape their pursuers. The family saw the soldiers approaching. They were frightened. His brother, Kazar, fired off a volley of arrows to hold the soldiers back. While they were fighting, the attackers called out. Send out your elder brother, Tamujin. We're not here to fight with you. Upon this call, they put Tamujin on a horse and sent him away to flee. Hey! 
Temujin cannot escape his pursuers. He is captured, bound, and brought to the camp of an enemy clan to live his life as a slave. He is humiliated and ridiculed, forced to serve his tormentors. Yet even here, there are some who believe the shaman's prophecy that Temujin will one day be a great leader. But most are simply determined to break his will. During the night, he is lashed to a yoke and guarded. But Temujin's life will not be the life of a slave. for the woods they will spot me he thought to himself so he went to the river using his yoke as a float but as Shorgun Shira passed by the river he saw Temujin lying there and spoke to him quietly it's because you're a clever young man that they are afraid of you they say your eyes contain fire that your face fills with light just stay where you are. I won't tell them I've seen you. Shihi Huduk records that Temujin does escape. But the history contains many gaping holes, lost years in the life of the young Genghis Khan. Temujin emerges as an imposing man, a man in command of a small army of Mongol warriors. After years of searching, he has found his betrothed child bride, Borta, and made her his wife. But he knows he will need much more to survive. Temujin needs allies, and he seeks the favor of Toril Khan, leader of the Karaites, a man who had once been a close friend of his father. In the old days, you and my father were blood brothers. You are like my father. I've just married an Ungarad woman, and I brought the wedding gift to you. Toril gives Temujin his blessing and his permission to reunite his clan, even to raise an army.
enterprising young men are drawn to Temujin's camp and trained as warriors. As an incentive for obedience, Temujin promises them raids and rich rewards. Here, his riders learn an unusual skill. To fire their arrows at their enemies while riding away at full gallop. It is a maneuver that will soon help make them the greatest army on earth. In times of peace, everyday life in a Mongol camp is tranquil. Yet, preparations for war are always going on. Women care for the sheep and tend to the yurts and carts. Men fix saddles and cure meat, provisions for their long expeditions. The Mongolian men devote even more attention to the preparation of arak, their favorite drink, made from fermented mare's milk. The potion is strong and is often blamed for fighting even wars between the clans. On simple hearts, the Mongols forge scimitar swords. But special craftsmanship goes into the making of their miracle weapon, the weapon that will make them superior to other armies, the reflex bow. Carefully crafted by layering and gluing wood and horn, the reflex bow can achieve much greater velocity than the traditional European longbow. Together with the scimitars, the Mongol warrior will possess a potent arsenal. The powerful reflex bow is so strong, it requires two men to string it, to bend it against its natural curvature and fit it with a cord made of animal tendon. An arrow shot from the reflex bow can even penetrate a coat of European chain mail. In combination with their hardy horses, it will make the Mongol army virtually invincible. But before Temujin and his men face the armies of the West, they will be forced to contend with the other powerful tribes all around them. In the 12th century, the Mongols are surrounded by enemies, the Merkites, the Naiman, the Tartars. But no matter how bitter the divisions, the tribes share a similar culture shaped by their nomadic way of life. Tribal chiefs, the Khans, enjoy the spoils of their triumphs. They love dancing, music, and the company of women. Wealthy Khans typically keep a dozen or more wives, plus numerous female slaves. Many of the women are brought to the Khan's court by force, bought or abducted from rival clans. Temujin's own mother had been abducted. His father had stolen her from a wedding caravan while she was en route to meet her Merkite husband. Such a crime, though common, draws bitter retaliation. 
a fact that will one day come to haunt Temujin while he is out with his family on a hunting expedition. Their camp was at the Carolyn River's source when one morning, just before dawn, his mother's servant woke the camp with a startling cry. Mother, mother, get up. The ground is shaking. I hear it rumble. Alone, without his army, Temujin and his family are forced to flee for their lives. But there are not enough horses for everyone. Faced with a difficult choice, Temujin orders his mother to take the horse. His wife, Borta, is left behind, along with the servant woman, to fend for themselves. Whipping the ox, the old woman drove the cart away from the camp, but as she journeyed upstream, soldiers were upon them. The Murkite warriors stopped the woman, but she claims to know nothing of Temujin and his family. is taken prisoner by the Murkite warriors. It will take Temujin nine months to rescue her, and in revenge, he launches a brutal assault on the Murkite tribe. They came down on them as if through the smoke hole of their tents, capturing and killing their wives and sons. They struck at their door frames, where their guardian spirit lived, and broke it to pieces. By 1200 AD, Temujin is a war hero. More and more men join him. Fighting at his side earns them rich rewards. Temujin decides it is now time to avenge his father's death. He will attempt to rally his men to their greatest challenge, battle with the powerful Tartars. Since the days of old, Tartars have fought our fathers. Now is the time of our revenge. We will kill every Tartar man taller than the linchpin on the wheel of a cart. We will kill them until they're destroyed as a tribe. Generations of anger are unleashed. The climactic battle between the Mongols and the Tartar will be one of the bloodiest in human history.
Temujin makes good on his pledge. The surviving Tartar men are beheaded. Only children and potential concubines are spared, taken as slaves. But Temujin is not the only one bent on dominating the peoples of the East. Jamuk, his blood brother from childhood, has also become a successful general. Their once close friendship has long since turned into bitter hatred and jealousy. Jamuk now assembles soldiers to fight against his former friend. sacrifice, they pledge their support to Jamuk, their new leader. But Temujin is allied to Toril, the mighty leader of the Kirite tribe. In Toril's jealous son, Jamuk senses opportunity. I am the sparrow who is always with you. Tamujin is no longer behind us. He is the lark who flies south when it is cold. He has deserted us to join our enemies. Into Oril's court, Jamuk's plan begins to unfold. Temujin has an audience with the aging Khan. He hopes to cement his claim to the future throne by proposing his son marry to Oril's granddaughter. But Toril's son has been well prepared by Jamuk. He insults Temujin, a humiliation that will not be forgotten. Jamuk senses his plan is working. Tamujin is sending messages back and forth to the Naiman. While his mouth is saying words like father and son, his actions speak otherwise. How can you trust such a man? If you don't stop him now, who will save you? If you attack Tamujin now, I'll pledge to attack him from the rear. Jamuk's armies join to fight against Temujin's warriors. It is a bitter battle. For all know, the loser will receive no mercy, and the winner will be the most powerful force on the Mongolian steppe. Fighting comes to an end. Temujin, the future Khan, is victorious. His former lord, Toril, is now dead, and Jamuk, his arch rival, is on the run, escaping to the hills with a small band of survivors.
he who once commanded tens of thousands of warriors now has to hide in the mountains with only a handful of followers. Jamuk works to find allies against his former blood brother. He even joins with former enemies and attacks his own clan. Disillusioned, his followers hatch a desperate plan, a plan they believe will save their own lives. delivered to Temujin by his former comrades in arms. The men expect gratitude from Temujin for delivering his enemy. But the men are gravely mistaken. How can we allow men who lay hands on their own lord to live? Who should trust people like this? Such people should be killed along with their descendants. Temujin proposes to bury their rivalries and return to his side, but Jamuk refuses and seeks only an honorable death. My blood brother, if you want to favor me, then simply see that my life is ended without shedding my blood. His wish is granted. Temujin's last great enemy is dead. Temujin receives the Mongols' greatest honor. At age 44, he is proclaimed Supreme Commander and Khan of all Mongols by the Grand Assembly of Tribes. A veteran of many battles, he accepts the homage of his tribal leaders. Temujin Jamak! Hambodri! Temujin, if you'll be our Khan, we'll search through the spoils for the beautiful women and virgins. If we disobey your command during battle, take away our possessions, our children and wives. Leave us behind in the dust, cutting off our heads where we stand and letting them fall to the ground. given a title nobody has been awarded before, Genghis Khan, the impetuous ruler.
Genghis Khan set the lives of all Mongolian peoples in order and made this decree. To reward those who fought with me to establish the nation, I will make them leaders of a thousand. To consolidate his power, Genghis Khan radically restructures his army. Disregarding tribal affiliations, he gives each of his loyal soldiers command over a thousand men. Within the smallest subunit, a platoon of ten, each man is responsible for all the others. If one retreats in battle, all will forfeit their lives. Without regard to rank or status, he makes generals out of shepherds and carpenters. He also recruits a personal guard of 10,000 elite soldiers, drawn from sons and brothers of aristocrats and generals. They double as hostages to secure the obedience of their families. now feels powerful enough to explore beyond the vastness of the steppe. He sends scouts in all directions, not just to find realms worthy of plunder, but whole nations to conquer on the far side of the great deserts. Neither the Gobi nor the Taklamakan can stop Genghis Khan's faithful warriors. And whether freezing cold or burning heat, the Mongols' horses prove as enduring as their riders. The scouts return with good news. None of the adjoining realms have an inkling of the impending threat. There is little obstacle to invasion. But Genghis Khan the warrior proves to be a wise statesman. From defeated administrators he takes lessons in ruling a realm. The illiterate Khan is quick to grasp the importance of the written word. He instructs his adopted son, Shihi Huduk, to put his laws into writing. Let no man violate his word. Strike fear in the hearts of the thieves. Bring remorse to the tongues of liars. Execute those whom custom has condemned to death. Write everything in a blue book. Let no one change anything she he huduk, after taking counsel with me, has written on the white paper of his blue book. Having reorganized his troops and administration, Genghis Khan feels ready to attack his greatest neighbor. In Genghis's time, what is today China was divided into two states, the Qin Empire, also known as the Golden Empire, and to its south, the Song Empire. It is an expedition fraught with risk. Genghis Khan consults the oracle.
the charred bones split lengthwise. It's, um... The omen of war. Thank you, Sanguage Watch. Genghis Khan assembles his army. They will march southwest into the richest region in Asia, over 100,000 strong. The soldiers are accompanied by women, children, and servants, well over 100,000 horses, and vast herds of goats and sheep brought along for food. At the command of the Khan, his entire palace yurt is placed on a platform on wheels drawn by more than 20 oxen. First, Genghis Khan leads his army against the Tangut people. The Tangut take refuge in a fortified town, temporarily thwarting the Mongols' assault. But a long siege ends with the Tangut's surrender. They offer gifts to the Mongols, but refuse to contribute men to the Khan's army, a refusal that will cost them their lives. In 1211, the Khan leads his troops into northern China, the Golden Empire of the Qin. For weeks, the Mongols assault the fortifications of the capital, what is today Beijing. Onslaught fails, but in 1215 the city surrenders. Its treasures are pillaged and its remaining inhabitants massacred. Genghis Khan is at the height of his power. His troops crush the last insurgents at home. He conquers the Sultanate of Khorasmia with the cities of Bukhara and Samarkand and strikes against the Tangut for one last time. The Tangut people made a promise they didn't keep. Genghis Khan has gone to war with the Tangut a second time and has destroyed them. Now, this writing is finished in the seventh moon of the Year of the Rat. Genghis Khan's sons and successors will extend the borders of the realm even further. They will conquer all of China and reach Laos and Cambodia in the south. To the east, Mongolian power will extend to Korea. In the north, Mongol troops will cross the Urals and conquer the vastness of Russia. And in the west, the troops will not stop their conquest until they have reached the Adriatic Sea and the gates of Vienna. But Genghis Khan will not live to see the great expansion of his empire. In 1226, the ruler of a nation of riders falls off his horse and dies of his wounds. According to some accounts, a thousand horses are driven over his grave 
until the last trace has vanished. Though his remains may be lost, the legend of the Rider of the Apocalypse will live on forever. The legend of Genghis Khan.